happy happy days happy sabbath happy season we are back after a short short uh break and after uh some eating and after some food and after some conversation we are here i love the sabbath because it is the sabbath before the sabbath before christmas and so we are going to talk about the worldview of scripture but before we do that we just have uh, to invite Jesus to come and settle with us, the Christ of Christmas, as we pray. Jesus, we want to thank you so much for the season. We want to thank you so much for the weather. We want to thank you so much for friends and for family, for hectic times, for moments of transition, for uh, reunions, for family, for stress. We want to thank you for gifts given and mercies received. We want to thank you for food, and even as we thank you for all the things that decorate this season, we would ask in a very special way that you remember those people who look at the next few weeks with dread, because it is during these times that their loneliness and their hurt and their sadness is magnified. So, Lord, let us just be together and let some of our joy and our cheer spread to those people that might be feeling a bit down. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joey, we have the best, best, best viewers in the whole wide world. We do. We do. They are so supportive whenever we're able to have a conversation with them. Some of them who attend our church physically, others who are from afar, they are just so supportive and give the best feedback for us to improve and, mm -hmm. and to learn and to grow. The best feedback, um, the best feedback. I often talk to people all over the country, Joey, and my usual questions are, okay, well, how did you find us? What's good to do in your particular area of the woods? And we have found some really, really interesting uh, suggestions, mm -hmm. of both things that we have to visit, I'm talking to you, Columbus, Ohio, um, and stuff to eat. Um, la a few weeks ago, I was greeted in the our foyer by somebody. Uh, her name is Jerry. She is from Chicago. Immediately asked her, what type of pizza should we have? And we had a wonderful little picture. And then my week uh, was just incredible because I found in my box this joey it's a pair of socks that jerry sent from chicago nice. and so i'll be wearing these whenever i'm in chicago uh probably not in the next few months because jerry we know the weather out there is truly frightful but the pizzas are indeed delightful uh particularly if you're on team giordano like i am joey uh we are talking about the worldview of scripture mm. And it's really difficult to talk about a worldview because as I was thinking about Jerry's wonderful gift, I also thought about how there are so many different opinions when it comes to stuffed crust pizza, particularly if you ask people in Chicago. And it has to do with what part of the city they're from or what actually uh, memories they have of, about a particular locale. Uh, people that, uh, when I go to Chicago, always accuse me because I'm a Giordano's fan, and they say, well, they've sold out and they've become too commercial. But hey, 
I've been eating at Giordano since the first time I went to Chicago 30 years ago. And so it has a special place in my heart. And I find mm -hmm. that when you're trying to distill the worldview of scripture, a lot of these things uh, are also true, meaning has to do with what parts of scripture do you prioritize? Mm. Uh, what stories in scripture did you grow up with? What uh, lessons from uh, the Bible do you find particularly apropos to the struggles that you're confronting? And so it's really difficult to talk about a worldview of scripture. Mm. Uh, and I think instead of doing that uh, this morning, I, I would much rather just talk about some guiding principles uh, that scripture has uh, that we can apply. But I don't know, if if I were to ask Joey O, what is the worldview of scripture, you might say something like? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, um, going back to your pizza point, um, I have a hard time having an argument about Chicago pizza because my favorite pizza is New York style pizza. So I will say Chicago style pizza, you understand why they call it a pizza pie because mm. it actually looks like a pie. I never yes. understood that in, until I saw a Chicago deep dish pizza. But as you were, your, your point is so valid in that our worldviews are determined by our experiences. And so that's what filters our worldview. So when we talk about the worldview of scripture, it's complicated because the worldview of scripture is a combination of the worldviews of various people mm -hmm. who, who wrote scripture, right? And they got their worldview from God as well. But God's worldview is filtered in the word of God through the worldviews of other people, mm -hmm. which is why sometimes people say, well, the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. God isn't different, but how people viewed God did shift throughout time. And how people view God even now, how I view God and how you view God is a little bit different. That doesn't mean that God himself is different and how he sees the world is different. It doesn't change the fact of reality, but our interaction with it is definitely filtered by our experiences. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about a biblical worldview, it, it is a complex complex discussion. It is very complex. It's complex. And Joey, you've said many, many really profound things. And so you were you were doomed to say something heretical at some point. New York pizza over <laughs> Chicago. Really, 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 really. No, 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 no. You've got to fold it over no, and then no, the oil no, is dripping no, out. Oh, it's no, nothing no, better than a cheese. No, no especially cheese, if you're a vegetarian. <laughs> How are you going to take vegetarian New York pizza versus <laughs> Just plain Chicago? Cheese. <laughs> Just cheese and spinach. Friends, uh, that's Joey. Nobody's perfect. We love him nonetheless. Um. I was thinking about this idea of worldviews, though, mm. uh, and it, it strikes me that you are absolutely correct in your assessment of Scripture, pizza pie notwithstanding, that it, it's this combination not only of different people's worldview, but of epochs in time, right? Mm. So life is going to look completely different if you're uh, writing or uh, if you're in a conversation with God during the exilic period, as it is during the monarchy, as it is during the gospels. And so not only is it that, that you uh, as a self-differentiated human being are different, mm -hmm. it's that you're living in different times. And obviously yeah. that's going to impact the worldview that you have. Yeah. For example, if you're living in the exile, I'm assuming that um, the big questions that you're having is when are we going home? Mm. 
Whereas uh, if you're living during the monarchy, probably the questions that are guiding your worldview is how do we rule mm -hmm. in a way that is just and fair and equitable in a way that makes God uh, proud and, and gives him glory. And so I think it's not just that we're talking about different individuals, it's that we're, it's that we're talking about different epochs. And so I think it's really difficult then uh, to take a particular passage of scripture and then canonize it and say, this is the worldview of the Bible. Mm. Uh, because it it does give itself to some misreadings of the text. And we're just going to talk about some of those in a second. Mm. Um, but I, I want to just ask you a very practical thing. If we both agree on the fact that we're talking not only about different times, epochs, and different people, uh, persons, but we're also talking about a book that is not complex, but it is vast. And so, Joey, can you give us just a couple principles that you use to make your reading of Scripture as uniform as possible? Hmm. So, you know, when I read Scripture, I balance, I try to balance two realities that I find in Scripture. One is that there is a divine element to Scripture, mm -hmm. right? Which means that there is an internal consistency. And so I look for that internal consistency mm -hmm. in, in a principle that often is called a let scripture interpret itself, mm -hmm. right? So scripture, the writers of scripture, if you see, they, they use not only the principles of scripture later on, but also the language of scripture mm -hmm. later on, right? The, um, the prophets, for example, um, writing about the exile or the, the, the moments after the exile, they use language from the Exodus, mm -hmm. right? That was a big, and when Moses writes about the Exodus, he uses language from the flood and from creation. Mm -hmm. So there is, and then you see with Revelation, it combina, um, combines to use, use the words and the, the principles found in the prophets. And so, so we, we allow scripture to interpret itself because there is a consistency in the message of God because the divine element runs through it. The other aspect that I see there is there is a human element as well, right? And so understanding the human element, I think, is also an important part of interpreting scripture because that means that we have to not only understand, look for that divine consistency, but also account for the human author themselves, right? Their worldviews, their experiences, their past, their context, um, who they were writing to, what they were writing about are all filtered through their own abilities. That's why even, I mean, in the original languages, you can see the difference between a writer like Luke, who was, mm -hmm. a, who was, who was tra a trained doctor versus someone like John, who was a fisherman. Mm -hmm. And even the language they use, the Greek words they use are very different mm. because mm. of that human element. Mm. So accounting for both the divine and the human mm. as, we, as we study scripture. Those are two things that I keep in mind. Well, that's, that's, that's actually really good. So because it answers, I think, some one of the questions that, that often people have, right? So if you say, wait, 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 if you're telling me that there's no consistency uh, or consistency within Scripture, then basically that's a slippery slope where I get to superimpose my own predilections on Scripture. And so then I become, uh, Scripture becomes subservient to me. What you're saying is, no, it's not my own predilections. It's we try to look at Scripture in order to have Scripture interpret itself. Mm -hmm. And so we're not, we are not then the ultimate arbiters of Scripture. Scripture is, is its own arbiter. Mm -hmm. And so I think that diminishes uh, the tension uh, a bit. And I love your, your point about language as well. Mm -hmm. 
uh, the idea that we need to recognize and really immerse ourselves in the context and then see that what is really important to some writers might not be as important to other writers. Mm, that's true. Um, there, there is, a, the lesson is talking a bit about uh, this idea of the temple, right, in, in Corinthians. And we know the issue with the Corinthian church. I don't think we have to revisit it. Um, but it takes this, this passage that we've heard a lot, don't, or, or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Mm, mm. And what it does with that, with that, with uh, what Paul does with that particular text, mm -hmm. is something very different uh, than what we've done with that text, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the lesson talks after that about uh, the following verse, which says, uh, "For you were bought with a price; mm -hmm. therefore, honor your, go your honor God with your bodies, mm -hmm. because your bodies are are not mm -hmm. yours." We've taken that to to mean. Uh, that we have to be temperate and that we have to do, uh, that we have to watch what we eat and what we drink, what we put, what we consume, what we put in our bodies. Mm. And while I think that is a, a case can be made for, for temperance uh, using scripture, mm. I don't think that particular text is the best text to use when it comes to trying to advocate a temperate life, lifestyle because mm. Paul's context and, and impulse, uh, actually, e economy, what he doesn't, what he cares about most at that particular point with these particular people isn't temperance. Mm. It's the idea of what faithful worship looks like mm. and how faithful worship needs to continue when you leave the when you leave the congregation. So it's mm. not just something that you do while you're with your church friends in uh in a service it has you, your life and the mm. life that you live around that church service is as important a witness as what you're doing in the church service so what paul is actually advocating for is not temperance it's consistency in living mm. a consistency that reflects this new life that you have in christ mm. again we're not saying that you can't build a case for temperance with mm. scripture what we're saying is that when you just pull that particular text out and say, okay, the worldview of scripture is temperance, mm. then what you might do is you might be superimposing your own uh, biases on scripture. And then this, this temptation and this, this danger that we're advocating against, which is for us to become the ultimate arbiter of scripture, actually is materializing mm, because wow. then we're superimposing what we want to yeah. put on the text. So using fancy words, we do eisegesis instead of exegesis, right? Instead of pulling the intentions of the author out, right. we are superimposing our own intentions right. onto scripture. I love that because, yeah, that means that scripture, scripture's words have a meaning beyond just the words themselves. Mm -hmm. Like I can't just say, okay, these words here, because I think they mean this, mm -hmm. this is what the author mm -hmm. meant. That's why that context is so important, like you were talking about, understanding the whole context instead of just pulling one, one piece of scripture out, like, like you were talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right? Um, he's talking about this idea of sexual immorality. Um, I love the, the frame that you put it, that this is that the way we live our lives is beyond just what we do um, at church or in worship, right. but also it, it flows into what he's going to talk about marriage later on. But it, when it comes to sexual immorality in this, in this context, 
He says, flee from sexual immorality. All sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And that 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 term right there, therefore, honor God with your body, we could take that and apply it to a lot of different contexts, mm -hmm. but we also need to be very faithful, I hear you saying, to what the reason why Paul says we need to honor and in what way Paul is talking about and really has to do with sexual immorality, right. that that is really the context here and not not um, to do with health, healthy eating or temperance because even, I mean, we can't say temperance because Paul Paul's intention here is not temperance at all because he's not saying you can only do have a balanced sexual immorality in your life right, right? He's, not, he's saying flee from it have no sexual immorality right. in your life and that's what it means to honor god with your body in this context and what's fascinating is you can create the text from the case for temperance in the same book mm. by jumping what three chapters ahead if you go to first corinthians 11 mm. The issue there is temperance. Mm. The issue there is overindulging at the expense of other people, overindulging in food. Mm. Uh, when Paul talks about correcting abuses in the Lord's Supper, that issue is about watch that you're not eating too much in, and then making other people wait and have mm. a different experience of the Lord's Supper because you were overindulging. Mm. Which is why I find fascinating that when we talk about healthy lifestyle, we go to uh, 1 Corinthians 7 instead of going to 1 Corinthians 11. Mm. But this idea of, of being flexible with the way we understand the worldviews of Scripture, I think, can also be applied mm. to that same exact uh, book. And I was reading this week, uh, not just uh, 1 Corinthians 7, which is the passage that the lesson talks about, but I was reading kind of around it, and it struck me. It struck me that around the multitude of approaches that people had uh, to Christianity as kind of Christianity is calling people from all different backgrounds, they agree on some things, right? Um, we said they agree on um, no food sacrifice to idols. They agree on no sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. These are things that regardless of uh, your background, these are things kind of that the whole church agreed upon, right? Mm -hmm. No no food sacrifice to idols, no sexual immorality. The issue of circumcision then is subservient and it becomes a personal choice. Mm -hmm. uh, although for Paul, in Paul's own context, even that very broad uh, framework that is given shifts a little because mm -hmm. Paul says, hey, if you're going to go uh, minister among the Jews, then it's probably a good idea that you get circumcised. Mm -hmm. And then to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians uh, 8, he talks about food sacrifice title, mm -hmm. and he says something really interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, verse 4, he says, when eating food sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God as one. And so he's he's making this case that really there isn't any in, anything inherently wrong with eating food sacrifice to idols which seems to fly directly in the face of what the Jerusalem Council had accorded. So what, whereas the Jerusalem Council said, hey, look, the minimum things that we can stomach at this point is you don't have sexual immorality, you don't eat food sacrifice title, mm. circumcision, that's your personal decision. Paul then is going to take those guidelines and say, 
okay, the personal decision kind of becomes compulsory depending on where you're ministering. I, if you're going to preach to Jews, you need to get circumcised. Mm. And this idea of food sacrifice to idol in a Gentile context is not as difficult to digest as it would be in a Jewish context. And so we know, we know that they're idols. We know that that's okay. And then Paul gives them, gives the principle that rules both the circumcision and the, and what you eat. He says, be careful, verse nine, that the exercises of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat with a sacrifice to idols? Mm -hmm. So this weak brother or sister from who, for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so in the context, the one, the, these principles that they've adopted, these mm -hmm. quote unquote, to use the t terminology that the lesson uses, these worldviews that they have adopted are flexible enough to allow for contextual differences as long as they get subservient to this idea of let's look at how we're impacting the community that we are called, being called to lead. Wow. Wow. There's a lot, a lot of great things in there. But this, this idea that, that even the Jerusalem church and Paul, um, they, they recognize that that guidelines are context-driven, mm -hmm. right? So in a certain context, at a certain time, in a certain place, um, at a certain period of history, this this guideline might be the best way to live. Mm -hmm. But in a different time, in a different context, that could shift. But behind all of those guidelines is a principle that could that is not changing, mm -hmm. right? And that principle is that you want to care for your brother, mm -hmm. right? And deeper, if you want to go even farther back than that, is that principle of love, mm -hmm. right? Love for others. That, so that let love for, for God and love for others be your guide mm -hmm. when you make these decisions in practical matters. Mm. That, that if we are following the letter of the law but are missing the principle of love, then actually we may be on the wrong side of that mm. law. And I think that is really, really important. What you're just talking about is really important if you're going to start distilling worldviews. Mm. Um, I was at a seminar put on by a gentleman, his name's Rob Wolcott, and Rob works particularly, primarily with uh, health-based universities. And what Rob does is he he's led several uh, rather well-known uh, faith-based universities in kind of designing, designing and defining their mission statements, their world, their own worldview, because what is a mission statement if not a worldview? This is what we believe or who we believe we are. And then Rob also uh, then tries to leverage that those mission statements into marketing plans. Okay, how does the world know us? And Rob tells the story of a president from a rather prominent uh, Christian university. Mm. Uh, rather conservative Christian university. The president himself himself wasn't from that particular faith tradition. And as we know, for example, uh, there are various varying beliefs within the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christian churches on uh, consuming uh, drinks that contain alcohol. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, some of our brethren within, you know, Catholic tradition or the Baptist, uh, the Baptist, uh, the, that believe in uh, in in a certain view on that. You have uh, Lutherans and Presbyterians that have a particular belief, and then you have kind of on the other end of the spectrum, people like a Church of God or Adventists who are completely teetotalers. 
Well, this this university that this gentleman had gone to work in was, like we said, rather conservative, so it kind of aligns where we live. But his individual beliefs were uh, not aligned with that particular with that particular issue. Now, mm. I think we all would agree that as long as you don't have an issue with drunkenness, there is no case that you can build in Scripture for complete abstinence. Mm. You, you just can't. Uh, there are uh, scientific cases, and there's health reasons, and there's obviously the temptation that this thing can have control over you. Mm. But you cannot build a scriptural case for teetotalism. This gentleman knew that. And so he enjoyed his uh, glass of whatever on occasion until he accepted the call to become president of this university. Mm. And upon upon accepting the call to serve as president of the university, he changed his worldview completely. And he said, in order to be consistent and faithful to the community that has hired me, I am going to adopt those their beliefs and their stands on this issue, even if I don't share those beliefs personally, even if they're not my individual conviction. And that, to me, as I was hearing this story, uh, was really powerful as I, as I began to think about how sometimes particularly in our current in our current context we are so in love with our own worldviews that we don't allow flexibility mm. and so i think flexibility in in what your worldview ought to be is necessary if you are going to be part of a community mm. because the communal ethos is formed out of many worldviews and mm. at some point your own individual preferences and predilections probably as this a Christian president did, need to be subjected then to the corporate or the communal ethos. Wow. And that's actually what Paul is saying here, it's right? exactly what Paul is saying. Yeah, he's saying that, yes, we know um, that this food that's sacrificed to idols really has no power mm -hmm. because they're just wooden stone. Mm -hmm. They're nothing. They have no influence. However, if it's going to cause your brother to stumble, don't do it. You're right. Yeah, just don't do it. Um, he sa says the same thing like you pointed out about circumcision. Mm -hmm. he, you know, the Jerusalem Council agreed that circumcision for Gentiles was not required. And yet he did circumcise mm -hmm. some people who were going to min mm -hmm. be ministering to Jews because he knew that was going to be a challenge for them. So he he's able to flex what he sees. He knows what he he knows what he thinks is right in his mind. And yet he's willing to flex his practices in order to adapt to a community that may view things differently. So perhaps then, if you're going to construct a worldview that is really, really faithful to Scripture, the place to start isn't by uh, enumerating a list of practices or a list of beliefs on uh, certain things. Uh, probably the primary place that you need to start is defining which of these beliefs are foundational. Mm. And then... Uh, how, which of the which of these practices? Notice that we're stating a difference between beliefs and practices. Mm -hmm. Which of these practices are that are fed by beliefs are flexible enough to shift uh, when it comes to contextual reality? Yeah. So the question then is, how do you determine that? How do you know which are foundational and which are not? How do you know what is the deeper principle and what? Is, is just mm. a guideline that can flex with context. Mm. Where do you find that answer? 
you started, and that's, I think, why we, we began our conversation with Scripture. Yeah. If I try to do it on my own, like you were saying, right? Yeah. If I try to use my own preferences and my own predilections, and then I try to subject Scripture to my preferences, then we're, then we're going to have problems. Yeah. So I think the question that we ask, and the way we answer your question is, mm. what beliefs... The, do you see in Scripture mm -hmm. that kind of remain the same? Mm -hmm. Where is it that we find this these overarching threads and yeah. themes in Scripture? And uh, chances are that somewhere there you're going to find something that's foundational. Yeah. And then when it comes to practices, you're also going to ask this question: the question of how did Scripture shift its mm -hmm. its own practices? Um, how did scripture adjust and adapt? Circumcision is a great example. It was really important uh, to the descendants of uh, Abraham. It wasn't as important to Paul. So what, which, where do you see shifts and moves in these practices? And where do you see these, these, this overarching thing? So I guess the way to answer your question mm. is to simply say, you got to study the Bible. Mm. Because if you don't, uh. it's going to look a lot like where my preferences uh, in my predilections lies. Wow. Study scripture. Let what scripture says are the primary themes mm. rather than our pet desires and themes. Because ten our tendency is really to, and I don't know why we do this. Maybe it makes us feel smart, mm -hmm. but we, we like to major in the margins, mm -hmm. right? Like we, we like to focus on those things that that are very much gray areas mm -hmm. or debatable. Like that's where we really focus a lot of our energy. And yet if we take time to study scripture, there's some obvious themes that run throughout all of scripture. I mean, I, I love how um, Ellen White talks about this in her, um, her, uh, con uh, her great controversy series, right? Her Conflict of the Ages series that starts with Patriarchs and Prophets ends in Great Controversy. And at the beginning and end of that, she bookends uh, both of those um, books with this idea of love, right? Mm. God's love. So the principle of love is something is, is found throughout scripture, how God loves us, how God calls us to love other people. That is a major theme that nowhere in, in scripture does it call us not to love mm -hmm. other people, right? That is a major theme that that is foundational to scripture. Um, the redemption of humanity, the nearness of God, how God wants us to draw near to him and us to um, trust him. Those things are foundational themes that you find throughout scripture. So I love what you said about looking for the foundational themes that don't shift and don't change in scripture rather than the ones that constantly shift. Yeah, and here's, I think, Jerry, that we, we're probably going to have a, a couple people I can just hear uh, people typing away furiously at their keyboards saying, Here's oh, what I found. saying, hey, um, you can build a, a case for Titoism in scripture. Uh, there's a there's that famous text that we Adventists love in Proverbs. I can mm. just hear them say say that, but and, and typing furiously away. But the real truth is that these foundational themes are few and far between. Mm. You're not going to get 50 of them. You're mm. not going to get 28 of them. Sorry. It's going to be a few. Mm. And that doesn't mean that the other stuff isn't important. It mm. just means that these foundational things actually 
inform the way we look at every at, at our practices. Mm. Uh, too often we build uh, we build from the outer from the from the if you think if you can think about a uh, some rings uh, some concentric or some concentric circles, we typically tend to build our our theology. Uh, taking what is on the on the outside of the circle and then we work inside. So mm-hmm. on the outside of the circle, I would put all of these practices. Mm-hmm. And so we have these practices inform our foundational beliefs because it's easier to do, right? It's easier to say, okay, this is what we do as a people. Um, and so let's now create something. Let's write it down. Let's actually stru- uh, structure it so that we can share uh, appropriately, why we do what we do and who we are. Mm. It's great for forming churches. It's not great for forming healthy theology. Mm. And so I would suggest that instead, if you can visualize again those concentric circles, we begin by saying these are the foundational things on which we can all agree, mm. not just us in our own denomination, but across the brotherhood and sisterhood of churches. These are things we all agree on. Now, how do we build practices that accurately represent these beliefs? And there might be some differences and some divergence in practices, but I I think we would uh, solve a lot of the religious conflicts that we have uh, and that we have had throughout history if we build practices based on belief and not belief based on practices. Mm, Wow. Based practices on belief, not belief based on practices, not prefer, I believe that I'm comfortable practicing these practices, so I'm going to find reasons why they are correct, not work that way, but actually examine our beliefs and say, how do we effectively live out these principles that we mm-hmm. find in scripture in our context at this time? I think I think that is that's so helpful because as we've talked about, it's like Sabbath is is something that we've talked about, right? And Sabbath has its roots in a deeper principle of trust in God, of this idea of wholeness, the importance of rest, a rhythm of rest. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that um, that has been neglected throughout mm-hmm. different periods of, of um, Christian history. But now the larger Christian church is actually awakening mm-hmm. to this idea of the importance of Sabbath, right? But what has caused... what we have learned within our Adventist context, even though we've had that principle for a very long time, in practice, we've struggled at times with it because we we used it not not looking at what it was originally for and the principle behind it, but instead saying, well, these are practices that other people in past history did, and so they must be right, and we need to directly copy and paste them into our lives right now instead of looking at well maybe because my context is different than that context perhaps we should go back to the principle itself and reevaluate how effectively to live out that principle in my life and it's led to a lot of unfortunately judgmentalism mm. when we look at when we believe that we have to copy and paste practices into everybody's life, we can. It's very easy to look at somebody else and say, "You're not doing what I'm doing, so you must be doing it wrong." Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that means I'm doing it wrong, and I can't agree that I'm doing yeah. it wrong, right? Instead of realizing that the principle may be the same, but if our contexts are different, perhaps there needs to be some adjustment there. 
Wow. Is that Joey, what you're saying? Yeah, that's, that's, that's more than I'm saying. That's, <laughs> that's, that can be controversial. So we're going to ask as, a, as your Christmas present to us, although we love the socks, we're going to ask some grace and some openness and some, and some curiosity from you. Because what Joey just did is he kind of expressed why uh, we've gotten to a place within Adventism with some rather unhealthy theology. Mm. So let me, let me be a bit more uh, forward and, and clarify it even more. Let's talk about the issue you're talking about, Sabbath. All right. So what drove Adventism's understanding of Sabbath wasn't this deeper practice, right? It was this desire to be different. Mm. And so when you say, well, what can make us different? Well, Sabbath. What you, then, you, what you then do is you create a theology based on this practice. Mm. And what is the theology we created? Well, we created this remnant church theology, right? We are the remnant church, and the proof is in the pudding. The proof is that we keep this day that nobody else keeps. Mm. And so that makes us different. And what that did was it put a lot of pressure on us as a people to do the things that we needed to do in order to safeguard our remnant stat status. So it's not just that we kept the right day, it's that in doing so, we, we did something different than all the other uh, Christian churches, and that actually safeguarded our place as remnant. Well, if your place as a remnant people needs to be safeguarded, then you need to be careful with all the other, these other practices that you have. And so from the Sabbath, and I can, I, 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 this is the argument I'm making, and I think it's, a, it's an argument that holds water. The idea, for example, of last generation theology, that in the end, it really is about God's law and a people that have been called out of the world in order to prove that God's law can be kept perfectly, again, putting the focus on us, is I think a direct result of, of coming to these practices that we saw that made us different and mm. building a theology of a remnant. Whereas if we would have done what you were suggesting from the beginning, which is saying, okay, there's this practice called Sabbath, but this practice is fed by a deeper, deeper principle. What is that principle? What is this unchanging principle? And I think you, uh, you have stated that uh, with beautiful elocution. Mm -hmm. um, I think then, instead of now looking at other churches to kind of be at the vanguard of what Sabbath and rest and communion and community mean, we would have had probably 160 years of literature to contribute to the conversation. Mm. So I think what you've done is you've just illustrated how in our own denominational history, uh, taking practices and then building theology sometimes leads us to become more and more insulated. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like how you said this, that, that actually the motivation that drove our practice of Sabbath was wanting to be different rather than wanting to trust God always, um, wanting to rest and have that rhythm of work and rest. Um, the, the principle of wholeness that the, 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 um, the lesson talks about, that instead of those motivations driving our, our, our practice of the Sabbath, we actually 
practice the Sabbath in order to be different from others. Mm. Now, to be fair, though, there is an element of that in the ways that we have uh, traditionally interpreted Revelation, for example, mm-hmm. right? Sealing, seeing seeing um, the Sabbath, the practice of the Sabbath as a seal of God, as an mm-hmm. identifying mark of the remnant, right? How we've interpreted Revelation has led us to feel like, oh, this is going to be the thing that sets the people who follow God mm-hmm. at the end times, this is going to be the thing that sets them apart, the practice of mm-hmm. the Sabbath. So how would you... How would you um, respond to someone who looks at Revelation and looks at how we've traditionally interpreted those passages in Revelation and say, well, isn't the Sabbath supposed to set us apart? Mm. How would you answer that? How would you reply to that? I think, Joey, it all has to do with what we've been talking about. Again, I'm going to ask for a special, extra special dose of grace this Christmas season to our viewers because what we are saying here is a bit controversial and we understand it and we are open again to your feedback and to continue the conversation we are not saying that we're completely right or we're not trying to be dogmatic we're we're really trying to have a conversation uh, that maybe gets us thinking in a, in a different direction so this whole hour we've been talking about worldviews mm. what is the worldview that fed our Sabbath uh, and our revelation interpretations. Well, the worldview that fed that was that all the other Christian churches mm-hmm. were Babylon. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So you, you came to this table of Christianity, of this faith, this beautiful faith with, pe- with beautiful people who believe in the same Jesus that you and I believe in. Mm-hmm. And you came to the table already predisposed against them mm-hmm. because you said these are Bab- they are babylon and we need to come out of them mm-hmm. what would have happened happened instead of coming to the table in an adversarial way mm-hmm. not giving other christian brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt but rather casting them with babylon what would have how would our interpretation of both sabbath and revelation look different if we would have come to the table and said, they are not Babylon, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, Mm. but we have something to contribute to the conversation. And so rather Mm. than uh, coming to it with an adversarial worldview, what would it have looked like if we would have come to to the interpretive table, particularly when it comes to issues of Sabbath and Revelation, with a collaborative agenda? What would, what would that worldview have looked like? I love what you're saying because what you're saying is that in order to get along, we don't have to give up everything that we believe. It doesn't mean that um, just because we want to get along with other Christians, we have to give up the Sabbath or give up these things that we think are a blessing and are, are things that God has taught us and a gift that we have to offer other people. So you're not talking about giving that up. You're talking about really how do we communicate mm-hmm. that? And we know from regular communication principles, like when you're having, when you're trying to convince someone of something, the worst way to approach that is to enter into an argument, mm-hmm. right? Because the more you argue with someone, the more, um, the d- deeper they're going to dig in their heels. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about is a, a more of a collaborative, let's learn about this together. And I do think, we've talked about context, right? I do think that our context 
we can't ignore the context of how our Adventist church, Seventh-day Adventist mm -hmm. church began, right? We began out of a movement, a millennial movement that at first was very welcomed in churches. It was never intending to start a denomination, right? right? It was just a message that uh, William Miller was preaching and his followers were preaching. And at first was very welcome because it caused religious fervor and passion. And people were excited about because Jesus was coming soon, they were more dedicated to their churches. So the churches loved it until the date drew near, and then it became a lot more controversial, and then people started getting kicked out of churches. And so they're, they're, because of their experience, their theology did shift mm -hmm. because they saw themselves originally as being a part of churches and trying to convince all these churches. When they got kicked out, then their theology shifted to, oh, they see us as Babylon, so we're going to call them Babylon. Mm -hmm. And there was that influence. We have to be honest about that. That was influential in the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that experience that that did, not, not, not to say that the truths that we gleaned and the things that we learned were false, but the context that they lived in was a very adversarial mm -hmm. context. They were kicked out. They were seen with suspicion by Christian churches. And so they saw, they, they looked with suspicion on other Christian mm -hmm. churches and it created this tension and now, hopefully, now over 100 years later, um, we have a different context mm. that we live in. And perhaps the truths that we, the gifts that God has given us about wholeness, about Sabbath, are things that perhaps can be spread even wider within the Christian community if we didn't see other Christians as much as adversaries but as people mm. of God that we can partner with, mm. that we can learn from, and that we can have, we can also have things to teach. That's that's beautifully st stated. Um, completely agree with what you're saying. Uh, yeah, and it and to be fair and to be gentle on us on and on on our tribe, we're not the only ones yeah. that did it. No, right. We're um, not. The idea of becoming adversarial with people that believe different than we do is as old as belief itself, yeah. right? Uh, the Jews were adversarial to, towards Christians. Christians were adversarial to, towards Jews. Uh, the Eastern Church became adversarial to the West. The West became adversarial towards the East. Catholics became adversarial to Protestants, and so on and so forth until now. And so I think then the question is, is scripture positing a worldview that is a adversarial and that believes that truth that truth in praxis remember we don't really debate i i don't remember the last debate i've sat through on the divinity of christ mm. don't know don't know if there's if they're having some um, but I, I've not, I haven't heard it within Adventism or the broader Christian context. Not for a while. Not for a while. Yeah. Um, we, <laughs> y'all know what we're talking about if you're, if you follow the history of the church. Um, but we, we kind of have, have landed the plane on several things, right? Mm. Um, at least within, with even with even with our Catholic brethren, the primacy of grace—that's not a debate that is had anymore. Mm. So the question then becomes: Are we? Do we have a worldview that is a adversarial, 
and the beliefs that absolute truth and praxis exists, mm. or B, do we have a worldview that is collaborative and that believes that freedom in praxis is not only uh, allowed, but is actually beneficial? Mm -hmm. And depending on what worldview you adopt, um, is pro I can, we can probably tell you what stripes your theology is going to have. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It, it really comes down to, I think, what, you, what you've talked about as being the broad strokes of scripture, right? Because again, there is this tendency that we major in the, in the mm -hmm. minors, we focus on the controversial because in a sense, it does make us feel special if we're different than other people. I mean, that that's at the core of, of everything. Growing up as a Korean American in, in the United States, um, there was a period where I went through this like Korean pride because my Koreanness set me apart from mm. other people. Um, but not that I don't have pride in my Korean heritage, but I've kind of grown in my older and hopefully wiser years to go beyond just that, to realize that it's not just the, the, the differences that make me special, but it's also the connections mm. that make me special and it is a part of who I am. And so perhaps we're not talking about, and we, we should be very clear about this. We're not talking about letting go of the things that we believe are true and the practices that we practice, uh, we're not talking about diluting those right. things at all. What we're talking about is really an orientation and attitude towards others. As we keep those things that God has taught us and that have been so beneficial to us, mm. perhaps we are, we'd be better able to share them if we had an orientation of openness and having open-handedness rather than a closed-fistedness yeah. towards others. Yeah, that's that's the key of a grace-oriented worldview. And I think you've said it several times because we don't want to be misunderstood. Yeah. We're not saying chuck the Sabbath and throw out a teetotalism and start eating unclean food. That's not what we're talking about. Here's what we're talking about. So, Joey, you talked about, about being Korean-American. Um, I am Hispanic American, and I, I went through exactly the same thing. Mm. Uh, Y'all know me as Pastor Miguel, but none in, nobody in my family knows me as Miguel. Nobody. Mm. Everybody calls me Michael because that's my given name. Now, mm. um, I went through this period where I was like, no, I need to, I need to really ground myself in my roots. And so I'm going to use my Hispanic name and my Spanish name, and I need to learn Spanish. And I think as I got older, here's what I learned. When you see me, the first thing that you see is that I'm Hispanic. That's kind of unescapable. I sorry, Joey, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna confuse you for any other ethnicity because I see you. Mm -hmm. And now you have individual practices as a Korean American, as do I, that set you apart. But I don't know all of those. Mm. And that's not what defines you as being Korean American. I see that you're Korean American. Mm. It's visible. It's evident. It's mm. apparent to me. As Adventists, there might be all these practices that we do and that are beneficial and that enrich our experience as Adventists. But that's not the first thing that people need to see. Mm. 
The first people thing that people need to see, just like you see me as a Hispanic as a Hispanic American and Joey as a Korean American, is that you're a Christian, that you're a daughter or a son of God, that does you carry within you the scent of Jesus and all the other practices that come behind that enrich that experience. More power to you. Keep doing them. Keep grounding yourself in them. But when people see you, let them see Jesus. Amen. Joey, pray us out. Lord, one of the most difficult prayers that we ever pray, but one of the most foundational prayers that we have to pray is let others see you and not us. Not I, but you, Lord. Help that to be the prayer of our lives so that we can be transparent and allow people to see your love, your grace, your character shine through our lives is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And may Christ go with you, and may people see Christ in you, not only through the holiday season, but for the rest of your life. God bless you. We'll see you next week, Christmas Eve. We are hopeful that you'll join us. Mm -hmm.